Section 18 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Roseberry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Part 1, Fall of the Government. The Union was considered a great triumph for Pitt, but it was the cause of his immediate fall. He was anxious not to delay an instant in pushing forward the large and liberal policy of which the Union had only been the prologue. The Act of Union received the royal assent on the 2nd of July, 1800. At the first cabinet, September 30th, 1800, after the summer recess, Pitt developed his Irish policy. It included the substitution of a political in lieu of a religious test for office, a commutation of tithes, and a provision for the Catholic and dissenting clergy. Pitt had now to learn that in choosing a successor for the impracticable Thurlow, he had managed to find an even more treacherous colleague. Loughborough, as he sate at council with him, had already betrayed him. During this month of September, while staying at Weymouth, the Chancellor had received a confidential letter from Pitt with reference to these different points, and had at once handed it to the king, whose prejudice on this subject had already been revealed in connection with the Fitzwilliam episode. Thus fortified, the Chancellor at the Cabinet of the 30th of September proclaimed his virtuous scruples. The question was adjourned for three months, during which time it was hoped that the good man would reconsider his objections and prepare a complete measure on tithes. Loughborough had no idea of thus wasting his time. He spent this interval in working on that royal conscience of which he was the titular keeper. He sought the congenial alliance of Auckland, a valuable accomplice, not merely on account of remarkable powers of intrigue, but as brother-in-law to Moore, Archbishop of Canterbury. That prelate was now stirred by some occult inspiration to address a letter of warning to the king. Stuart, the primate of Ireland, was moved by a simultaneous impulse to exert his pastoral influence on his sovereign. Pitt was undermined. His colleagues began mysteriously to fall away. Chatham and Westmoreland, Portland and Liverpool, commenced to side against the Catholics in a cabinet which had been supposed to be unanimous in their favor. In January of 1801, the mine was sprung. At a levee in that month, the king stormed audibly against the proposals which neither the first minister nor the cabinet had laid before him. He sent Addington the speaker to remonstrate with Pitt, who indeed could not have failed to hear at once of the scene at court. Pitt immediately addressed a statement of his policy to the king, tendering his instant resignation if he were not allowed to bring forward these different plans as government measures. The king, in reply, begged him to remain and be silent. Pitt at once resigned, and the king, with apparent anguish, acquiesced. The parting honor that he awarded his minister is notable. He knew that it was of no use to offer Pitt money or ribbons or titles, so he began a letter to him, My dear Pitt, a circumstance which throws a little light on the character of both men. 
The transaction has brought bitter censure upon Pitt. It is not easy to see why. What more could he do? What war is to kings, resignation is to ministers. It is the ultima ratio. He was, perhaps, open to censure for not having himself prepared the king at an earlier stage of the proceedings for the projected policy, instead of leaving it to others with a hostile bias. But a minister who had served George III for seventeen years may be presumed to have understood the king's times and seasons better than any retrospective intelligence. It must be remembered also that after the adjournment in September to promote union in the cabinet, he was obliged to wait in order to speak on behalf of a united government. Further, it may well have been that from his knowledge of the king, he thought that the best chance of obtaining his consent was to lay before him a completed measure and not a projected policy. Nor could he foresee the black betrayal of Loughborough. It is not, however, necessary to dwell on the charge of negligence, for the real accusation is much graver than one of negligence. It is one of treachery. The accusation, so far as it can be ascertained, for it is vaguely and diffusely expressed, imports that Pitt held out hopes to the Irish Catholics by which he secured their support to the Union, and that, instead of fulfilling these pledges or doing his best to fulfill them, he resigned, a mock resignation which he endeavored to recall. But when and how were these hopes held out? There is absolutely no trace of them, none at least of any cabinet authority for them. Cornwallis and Castlereagh were indeed strongly pro-Catholic. What they did on their own responsibility is not known, nor is it now in question. But the most recent and the best informed of historians of the Union and the most hostile to Pitt, expressly admits that it is, in the first place, quite clear that the English ministers did not give any definite pledge or promise that they would carry Catholic emancipation in the imperial parliament or make its triumph a matter of life and death to the administration. On two points only did they expressly pledge themselves. The one was that as far as lay in their power, they would exert the whole force of government influence to prevent the introduction of Catholics into a separate Irish Parliament. The other was that they would not permit any clause in the Union Act which might bar the future entry of Catholics into the Imperial Parliament, and the fourth article of the Union accordingly stated that the present oaths and declaration were retained only until the Parliament of the United Kingdom shall otherwise provide. The actual hopes held out were these. Castlereagh, on returning from London in 1799, where he had gone to gather the sentiments of the Cabinet on the Catholic question, had written to Cornwallis that he was authorized to say that the opinion of the Cabinet was favorable to the principle of relief, though they did not think it expedient to make any public promise or declaration to the Catholics, or any direct assurance to the Catholics, but that Cornwallis would be justified, so far as the sentiments of the cabinet were concerned, in soliciting their support. And in his speech of the 5th of February, 1800, Castlereagh had further said that, 
an arrangement for the clergy, both Catholic and Protestant dissenters, had long been in the contemplation of His Majesty's ministers. These were the pledges. What was the performance? That at the very first cabinet held after the passing of the Union Bill, Pitt produced his policy, which more than embodied them, that he urged it on his colleagues with all his influence, that the king learned it surreptitiously and opposed his veto to it, and that Pitt thereupon promptly and peremptorily resigned. It is difficult for the most acute critic to perceive what more he could have done. It was impossible to convince or compel the king. His mind was too fixed and his position too strong. But it is urged that had Pitt insisted, the king who had given way to him before would have given way to him again. The answer is simple. He did insist, and the king did not give way, and would never have given way. For in this case, unlike the others, George III was convinced that he would incur the personal guilt of perjury under his coronation oath, and he knew that he would be supported in his resistance by the great mass of his subjects. Under the strain of this agony, for it was no less, torn by the separation from Pitt and by the pangs of his conscience, his mind once more gave way. The new ministry was already formed, and so, clear of all suspicion of interest, Pitt allowed the king's physician to soothe his old master's shattered mind by the assurance that the Catholic question should never more be raised by him in the king's lifetime. The promise was natural. George III was old and breaking fast. Two years later he was, in fact, at the point of death, the promise would probably not long be operative. But it has been insinuated that this was a mere renunciation on Pitt's part of a high principle in order to retain office, and that he was only too glad to be rid of an embarrassing pledge by a resignation which he hoped in this way to recall. Those who take this somewhat paltry view omit to state that Pitt's successor was appointed that he himself declined to lift his finger to return to office, and promoted in every way the strength and efficiency of the government that replaced him. Facts of this kind can, of course, be always dismissed by a knowing wink or a sarcastic smile, but it is not possible even thus to dismiss the letter written late in December 1801 by Bishop Tomline. The bishop tells his correspondent with a groan that he has just had a long conversation with Pitt, who had told him that he looked forward to the time when he might carry Catholic emancipation, and that he did not wish to take office again unless he could bring it forward. Upon the Catholic question, our conversation was less satisfactory. He certainly looks forward to the time when he may carry that point, and I fear he does not wish to take office again, unless he could be permitted to bring it forward and to be properly supported. This, the striking testimony of a most reluctant witness with regard to Pitt's innermost views, ten months after he had resigned and given his pledge to the king, must convince all those who are capable of conviction that Pitt's Catholic policy and consequent resignation were not less steadfast and straightforward than the rest of his career. 
It seems also clear from this significant narrative that Pitt's promise to the king was given under the persuasion that the king had not long to live, though George III survived his great minister just fourteen years. So much for human computation. On the other hand, if the king's death or madness could be attributed to the Catholic question, that reform would be indefinitely postponed. If the mooting of the question renewed the Regency discussions or produced a Regency, it would be too dearly bought. Compassion, nature, and policy pointed in the same direction. So obvious was the necessity of the pledge that Fox gave it at once and spontaneously on assuming office in 1806, though he had ten months before pressed the Catholic petition in a long speech, raising a fierce debate and division. I am determined, he said, not to annoy my sovereign by bringing it forward. This promise on the part of Fox, after harassing his rival with the question a short time previously, has always been held to be venial and perhaps chivalrous, but given by Pitt it forms an item in this inscrutable impeachment. Another is this. The resignation was a sham because Pitt urged his friends to join and support the new ministry. The reason, however, is obvious enough. We were at war, and the first necessity of that state of things was to form the strongest possible government. It could not be strong, for the best men of Pitt's government were out of it, and the area of choice was in no wise extended. But it was the only possible government, and as it was by Pitt's act that the government of the country was so weakened, a heavy responsibility lay on him. His critics appeared to think it was his duty to have declared war on the new administration, to have harassed it with Catholic resolutions, to have bidden his friends hold aloof, and to have presented to France the spectacle of a political chaos, of fierce faction fights for power at the moment of vital struggle with a foreign enemy. Fox was impossible. No sane minister could have recommended as his successor in the midst of a war the fiercest opponent of that war, a leader of some fifty or sixty followers, at the moment when the most powerful administration available was required to a monarch who less than two years before had struck him off the Privy Council with his own hand. Pitt could only be followed by a government formed out of his own party, one which he could support, putting the Catholic question aside. The choice lay between making his successors strong or weak. His paramount duty was to the war, and he preferred to make them strong. It surely requires a lively prejudice to blame him for this, and the mere formulation of the charge implies considerable ingenuity. As for Catholic emancipation, that did not enter into the calculation, for if Pitt could not carry it at that time, it would have been mere folly for anyone else to attempt it. We may leave the whole transaction with the words in which Sir James Graham admirably summed it up. Mr. Pitt was prepared to do the right thing at the right moment, but genius gave way to madness, and two generations have in vain deplored the loss of an opportunity which will never return. Addington, the new Prime Minister, was a friend of the King's, and a sort of foster-brother of Pitt's, the son of the respected family physician who had prescribed Colchicum to the elder and Port to the younger Pitt, 
Addington carried into politics the indefinable air of a village apothecary inspecting the tongue of the state. His parts were slender and his vanity prodigious. A month after Pitt's resignation, but before he had given up the seals, some of his ardent followers, cognizant of his pledge to the king on the Catholic question, attempted a negotiation to keep him in office. Among them was Canning, who sang, Pitt is to Addington as London is to Paddington. This was true, and the minimum of truth, but Addington did not see the matter in that light. The emissaries found him happy and immovable. After a short tenure of high office, the holder almost invariably thinks himself admirably fitted for it. But this was a strong case. Addington had never held political office at all, not an undersecretaryship, not a lordship of the treasury, and yet, before he had even received the seals, he felt himself a meet successor for Pitt. To counterbalance this deficiency in modesty, he had a handsome presence and warm family affections. It must also in fairness be laid to his credit that he was, heaven knows why, the favorite minister of Nelson. All that can be advanced on his behalf has been forcibly urged in the valuable vindication which Dean Milman addressed to Sir George Lewis. But it amounts mainly to this, that many country gentlemen preferred him to Pitt, because he had bland manners, and because they were not oppressed by his intellectual superiority. It is lamentable to think that if Pitt had to resign his power, it should devolve on Addington and not on Fox to succeed him. It is, however, pleasant to know that Loughborough received his due reward. The seals were taken from him. Still the wretched man hung on, he continued to attend the cabinet until Addington was forced to tell him plainly to be gone. He continued to haunt the court, with the result that on his death George III composed this epitaph for him. He has not left a greater knave behind him in my dominions. Pitt's retirement from office lasted three years. His first duty, like that of most ex-ministers, was to examine his private affairs and like most ex-ministers, with a distressing result. He was heavily in debt. He had to sell Hollywood. That Tusculum was heavily mortgaged and realized little surplus. His distress became known, for he was in danger of arrest. It was proposed to ask Parliament for a grant. The merchants of London offered him a free gift of £100,000. Pitt instantly put an end to such projects. He could not hold office again with the consciousness of such obligations. The king begged him to accept thirty thousand pounds from his privy purse. Pitt, with some emotion, declined this offer also. Finally, he condescended to take a loan of some twelve thousand pounds from a few personal friends. This discharged the most clamant and petty creditors, but it left a heavy balance and the loan was never paid off for nearly all the contributors refused to include it in the debts paid by Parliament at Pitt's death. And to the last day of his life, executions were threatened and even levied in his house. This is not altogether a pleasant picture. He had enjoyed fully £10,000 a year for many years from his various offices. Although it is only fair to remember that at his death his salary as First Lord of the Treasury 
was no less than seven quarters in arrear. He had no expenses except those of homely hospitality, but his ideas of public and private finance differed widely. We are told that when he could not pay his coachmaker, he would order a new carriage as an emollient measure. And so with the other tradesmen. His household was a den of thieves. While he watched over the treasury like Sully, he conducted his own affairs like Charles Surface. In other respects, this year redounded greatly to his credit. He not merely gave an ardent support to Addington, but conducted the negotiations for a peace. By this he pledged himself to the preparation and defense of a treaty, any honor from which would entirely benefit his successor, and of which the blame only could devolve on himself, an episode surely rare in the annals of ex-ministers. The preliminary articles were signed on the 1st of October, 1801. We restored all the colonies that we had taken, except Trinidad and Ceylon. We agreed to give up Malta to the Knights of St. John. The fisheries in Newfoundland and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence were to be replaced on the same footing as before the war. Egypt, from which an expedition dispatched by Pitt had driven the French just after his resignation, was given back to Turkey. In return, the French did little more than withdraw from southern Italy. It was a treaty which could only be justified on the plea of imperious necessity. Much was conceded, for it was necessary to concede much. A prolonged armistice, for with Napoleon it could be little more, was absolutely needed. At any rate, it was hailed by the public with rapture, and it greatly strengthened Addington's administration. Grenville and Wyndham were, however, furious. They were joined by Spencer. Pitt's following was rapidly breaking up. Already Auckland, who was under every conceivable obligation to Pitt, and whose daughter Pitt had nearly married, had snapped and yelped at the heels of the departing minister. The new government had succeeded to Pitt's majority, which they maintained at a general election in 1802. He had indeed pressed all those whom he could influence to join or support the administration. Consequently, his personal following consisted only of those adherents, such as Rose and Canning, who would not take his advice. The years of Pitt's retirement were mainly spent at Walmer, with occasional excursions to London and Bath. From April of 1802 to May of 1803, he does not appear to have entered the House of Commons. In May of 1802, he received the greatest compliment that has ever been paid to an English statesman. Sir Francis Burdett had moved in indirect, and Nichols, the author of Some Paltry Recollections, a direct vote of censure on the late government. Both were rejected by immense majorities. But such rejection did not satisfy the House. A mere negative was insufficient. By an overwhelming majority against a minority of 52, it was carried that the Right Honorable William Pitt has rendered great and important services to his country and especially deserved the gratitude of this House. And immediately afterwards there took place that spontaneous celebration of his birthday which was repeated for a full generation afterwards. It was for that first banquet that Canning composed the exquisite verses 
the pilot that weathered the storm. Under honors so unparalleled, Pitt could well remain in contented quiet at Walmer. That repose was greatly needed for his health, which, as has been seen, gave way in 1798, and now continued slowly declining to the end. He who had been at work by nine had become a late riser. He had ceased to answer letters, and the visits to Bath, commenced in October of 1802, became a frequent and periodical necessity. In September of 1802, he was again seriously ill, but his enjoyment of Walmer was intense. No disencumbered atlas of the state ever returned to country life with a keener relish. Shooting and laying out his grounds and the society of a very few old friends were his main amusements, and perhaps he was equal to no more. But in the summer of 1803, the apprehensions of a French invasion gave a novel employment to his active mind, for he construed his office of Lord Warden in its ancient and most literal sense. In August of that year, he raised and drilled a volunteer corps of 3,000 men. Amid the derision of his enemies and the apprehensions of his friends, he spent his days in feverish activity, riding and reviewing and maneuvering along the coast committed officially to his charge. He would not even go to London, unless the wind was in a quarter that prohibited a hostile landing. End of section 18